My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. the mother of Jack Lex, who has been imprisoned in a prison in northeast Syria for the past five years. The messages from Global Affairs Canada in the first two years were all very supportive, but then at one point everything changed and became one paragraph. There's nothing further we can do. That is the battle we have been fighting ever since. That's the voice of Sally Lane. She and Matthew Behrens are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. The mistreatment of Muslims by the Canadian state since September 11, 2001, has taken numerous forms, domestically and internationally. Among other things, the Canadian national security state has profiled, targeted, and harassed Muslims. There was the use of national security certificates, whereby a number of Muslim men were detained indefinitely in the absence of any charges or publicly presented evidence, the so-called secret trials cases. Then there have been instances of rendition to torture, in which the Canadian state engaged in various forms of complicity with the torture of Muslims, including Canadians, by other governments, whether through facilitating their rendition, providing or acquiring intelligence, and or refusing to repatriate them. In all of these cases, the Canadian state has actively eroded or outright violated guarantees of due process and human rights, and has often gone on to lie about it. The case of Jack Letts is best understood in this context. Originally a dual UK and Canadian citizen, Jack has been imprisoned in northeastern Syria for five years under conditions akin to torture, and the Canadian government has refused to do anything to pursue his release. Sally Lane is Jack's mother. She said he was an intense, passionate, and engaged kid who converted to Islam as a teen. A few years later, with his parents' support, he was on a trip to visit a friend in Jordan and to take a course in Kuwait. And then his parents got a call from Jack, saying that he was in war-torn Syria. Lane said, quote, That was the point that our nightmare began. End quote. Events since then have been difficult and convoluted, to say the least. For a period of time, Jack was in territory controlled by the Islamic State, or ISIS. That was of great concern to his parents, and also to state authorities in the UK, who closely monitored his location and communications. At some point, a right-wing tabloid in the UK got hold of Jack's story and turned distortions, half-truths, and lies into an Islamophobic media firestorm demonizing Jack, which has had repercussions down to the present day. Throughout all of his communications with his parents from Syria, Jack has been very clear that he was never a member of ISIS and had not engaged in harmful activities. Despite their intense surveillance, at no point have UK or Canadian state officials presented any evidence to Lane, to the media, or to a court proving otherwise, something UK officials no doubt would have done if they could when they put Jack's parents on trial for attempting to send him money to allow him to flee Syria. 
Because their case was before the courts, Lane and her husband were not able to rebut the lies being told about their son in the media under threat of contempt of court charges. In 2017, Jack somehow ended up in the custody of Kurdish forces in northeastern Syria, who are currently detaining more than 40 Canadian Muslims, mostly women and children, in terrible conditions. In 2019, after Lane and her husband were acquitted, the UK government stripped Jack of his UK citizenship, so Lane moved to Canada to pursue her son's case here. At an earlier moment, the Canadian government had sounded somewhat supportive, but at a certain point they made it very clear that they would do nothing. Currently, Lane is pursuing two courses of action. One is a court challenge being mounted by the families of a number of Canadians detained in northeastern Syria. They're asking the court to force the federal government to act on its responsibilities towards citizens and help them return home. The other is a public campaign mounted in collaboration with Barons, a longtime activist in related cases. This has included an online petition, a chain fast, public events, a social media campaign, and lots of advocacy. The campaign aims to chip away at the baseless rhetoric from politicians and media portraying Jack as a monster, and instead to humanize him. They're demanding that the Canadian state meet its obligations and bring him home. And in so doing, they are making it clear that, like most of the other Muslims that the Canadian state has targeted over the last two decades, no evidence has been presented showing Jack has done anything particularly harmful. And even if he had, that should not lead to him being deprived of basic due process, citizenship rights, or human rights. I speak with Lane and Barons about the case of Jack Letts. My name is Sally Lane, and I am the mother of Jack Letts, who has been imprisoned in a prison in northeast Syria for the past five years. And my name is Matthew Barons, and I'm with the group Stop Canadian Involvement in Torture, which is involved in Jack Letts's case because he is being held under conditions akin to torture in northeast Syria, along with at least 43 other Canadian Muslim men, women, and children. Jack was always a very intense kid, even when he was very young. Whatever he did, he always threw all of himself into it. When he was 16, he was doing a philosophy and ethics course at school, and he just had his eyes opened, I think, to the injustices in the world, and he became a very passionate debater. At the same time, so at the age of 16, he converted to Islam. His best friends at school were the Muslim kids. I think he just found them more interesting, and he used to debate a lot with them. And then he poured his energies into learning Arabic so that he could read the Quran in the original. And he was fluent within a year. Then he was meeting up with people who he could practice his Arabic with. So he was mixing with university students who were quite a lot older than him. We then wanted to sort of channel his interest in this area. So we supported him going on a course abroad to learn Arabic and also Islamic studies. Before that, he went on holiday to Jordan to visit a friend. He was only going for 10 days, but then he asked us if he could extend because he had found this course in Kuwait that he wanted to study. So he went there. Next thing we knew, we had a phone call from him saying, Mum, I'm in Syria. And that was the point that our nightmare began. And since that point, we've been trying to get him back. 
What's your understanding of what Jack was doing in Syria? It was difficult to find out exactly what he was doing in Syria. He did keep in touch with us, but there were long periods of time where, you know, communications were difficult. There was obviously a lot of suspicion about what he was doing there. And so the police mounted their own investigation. So at that point, he was actually subjected to a very detailed examination. So every message, every GPS address, his locations, everything was intensely monitored. The police told us that they were helping us bring Jack back. And we naively believed them. The arrangement was we would tell them everything that we knew and vice versa. After about a year, he started sending us desperate messages saying that he needed to get out, that ISIS were hunting him and we needed to pay a people smuggler. And we were told by academics at King's College in London that this actually was the only way that people could get out because ISIS were killing people who were trying to leave. And Jack has always said that he was never a member of ISIS, that he detested ISIS, that yes, he was in IS territory, but he challenged them in the street. He actually went to court in Mosul testifying against them, at which point he got thrown in prison. He was actually imprisoned by them twice. They said the third time they caught him, they would kill him. All this information has never come into the public domain. I've tried very hard. I've sent the original messages to journalists, both in the UK and in Canada, and they won't publish them. For a long time, we were unable to get it into the public domain because it was considered contempt of court. Because to cut a long story short, my husband and I, after having been given permission by the police to send money for Jack to escape, they then withdrew that permission after three days, said they changed their mind and they arrested us for funding terrorism. As it happened, we were found not guilty on the charge of sending Jack a thousand pounds, which actually never even got there because the police impounded it on the grounds of the defense of necessity, i.e. we were sending him the money in order to save his life. So this was accepted at the Old Bailey that Jack was running for his life. During the period of time that John and I were awaiting trial, which was a period of three years, none of the information that we had about Jack's opposition to ISIS was allowed into the public domain because of contempt of court. Whereas all the misinformation about him, that he was a jihadi, etc., etc., which was based on tabloid lies, we couldn't counter. And what's your understanding of why the UK and Canadian states have been so resolutely hostile to Jack? When you actually look at the facts of Jack's situation and the situation of the other detainees, they're actually quite sympathetic. These are young people who are very idealistic, very passionate about what's going on in the world, and they want to do something to change circumstances that cause such horrors as we were seeing in the Assad regime's war against the Syrian people to take place. And I think in Jack's case specifically, there is a sense of the so-called race traitor in which a white man converts to Islam and then goes to Syria. And in fact, the headline when he was first referred to as Jihadi Jack actually said he's the first British white boy to join ISIS, even though he had never joined ISIS. So I think there's that sense of how dare you go over to the other side. So I think that's part of the public framing of the hostility. And then they just build on the big lie. 
And the big lie here is that anyone who was in Syria must have been up to no good, even though there were humanitarian aid workers, people like Jack who went for humanitarian reasons. And I think we don't like to look at root causes. We see this especially after 9-11, when to actually question what is going on in the world and say, well, why would this happen? And why would people do certain things? That is seen as almost a treasonous thing to do. But let's look at the young people who've gone to Syria. Many of them, as we've seen from studies now, they're young women, young men who are leaving a very Islamophobic society like Canada, in which simply to practice your faith means to be on the radar of CSIS and the RCMP. You cannot belong to a Muslim student union in this country and not have CSIS knocking on your doors and asking about you or asking you to inform on your friends. And a lot of folks, like the young people who have gone to Syria, I think, bought into the early propaganda that this was going to be this Muslim paradise. I also think that when these folks are repatriated, they will have stories to tell that will reflect very, very poorly on both Canadian and British government decision-making when it comes to their failure to stand up for and uphold the rights of their citizens when they're detained abroad. Specifically in Jack's case, I think we have a very clear case where Jack was tortured by proxy by British authorities. They sent questions to his captors who tortured him, and Jack recognized that those questions had to have come from the UK in the same way that when Abdul al-Malki, Ahmed al-Mati, Muyab Nuruddin, Abu Sufyan, Abdul Razak, the list goes on, Canadians who have had similar treatment. And when they come back, there's an inquiry and all of a sudden these institutions that we all, you know, are supposed to be so proud of, like the RCMP, they're an organization that is involved in torturing its own citizens. So I think that there is a real concern that by bringing them back, the truth will be revealed. And part of that truth will be your politicians and your government agencies have been lying about the real circumstances about the individuals who are detained in Northeast Syria. And Sally, what's the situation been in more recent years? Jack was captured by the Kurdish forces when he was trying to flee with a group of refugees. He was either captured or sold. The story is rather unclear. That was in May 2017. He was then taken to a prison near the border with Turkey. He was told that he would be back to Britain very soon, probably within the week. So we thought, this is it. He's finally managed to escape from ISIS territory. He'll be home. Well, that was five years ago. Since then, we have liaised with the UK and the Canadian government. The Canadian government was initially very receptive The messages from Global Affairs Canada in the first two years, I would say, were all very supportive. But then at one point in 2018, everything changed. All the positive messaging completely shut down and became one paragraph. We have no consular assistance. We closed our embassy in 2012. There's nothing further we can do. That is the battle we have been fighting ever since. The UK revoked Jack's citizenship in 2019, right after our trial for funding him, which meant that when I contacted the Foreign Office in the UK, they said there's no point in even speaking to them anymore because Jack was no longer British. 
So two years ago, I moved to Canada to mount the campaign here. Since then, it's been difficult because, of course, COVID, we were advised by our legal team not to go public because it would be much more effective if things were done below the radar. So we worked according to that principle, you know, hoping that this legal case would make the government see sense that they actually have an obligation under the Constitution and the Charter of Rights that Canadian citizens have a right to return under Section 6. And now the case is finally going to court. It's a group action with all the Canadians. So that's about 20 children, about 15 women and about eight men. The women and children are in the camps in appalling conditions and the men are in the prisons. Their conditions are less known about because the complete lack of information that is allowed in and out of the prisons. So we haven't actually had voice messages from Jack in five years. And the only other information has been a handful of Red Cross letters, which are heavily censored. Jack, right at the beginning, told us that they all have to sleep on the floor. The cells are for eight people, but there are 35 people in them. They're never allowed outside. He was put in solitary. He said it was about six foot by about three foot for 35 days as punishment for John, my husband and I, going to the press. NGO reports have said that disease is rife in the prison. There have been long periods of time where we haven't known if Jack is alive. We've had to go from the reports based on the journalist gossip. A big factor in going public was the prison massacre in January of this year, where ISIS attacked the prison where 5,000 inmates are and held the youth wing hostage. Several prisoners were killed. I've been trying to campaign, I suppose, reasonably under the radar via Twitter, trying to get organisations to do the campaigning on our behalf. And I thought, it's just not working. If I don't go public, then I won't have a son. And there's obviously stigma for somebody in my position, for all the family members. We've all been demonised. All of us are in fear of losing our jobs. A lot of family members are trying to keep it quiet that their loved ones are in prison abroad because it has ramifications in very many ways. But it's got to the point where we need the public to know about this. And we found just with the campaigning that Matthew has led in the past few months that people are shocked by this. What's happening as part of this latest phase of campaigning? As I said early in the program, I think Jack fits the profile, as do these other detainees, of generations now of Muslims who have been demonized by our government, by international governments, by right-wing media pundits, and by Islamophobes. And I think, as we saw with the secret trial campaigning that took place in the decade after 9-11-2001, as well as in the campaign to repatriate what we are shockingly now calling the first generation of rendition to torture victims from Syria, from Egypt, from Guantanamo Bay. 
that the key thing has been presenting a human face, telling a story, and asking people who are listening to put themselves in their shoes and say, what would you do in this situation? How do you feel about the fact that your government is complicit in keeping people under conditions that are akin to torture? And we saw with the secret trial campaign and in the rendition to torture cases that the more we went out and talked about it and had reasonable discussions about it, people were horrified. People wanted to know what they could do. And so it's been a real blessing and a gift to meet Sally and John as they're trying to bring their son home. And now that Sally is here in Canada, we have begun a public campaign to actually tell the truth, to get behind the mythological jihadi jack. We have this really bad habit globally, but especially in Canada, of creating monsters out of Muslims. We saw this time and again, whether it was Omar Khadr or Abdul al-Malki or Mahmoud Jabala from The Secret Trial 5, that whenever their cases were discussed in the media, we build these figures up into such horrifying figures that we're almost paralyzed when it comes to thinking about how we can respond. Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, Ralph Goodale, these politicians, they get away with this because they know that it's going to be very difficult for someone to speak up when someone has allegations that they are associated with ISIS tied to them. Well, we saw in the Secret Trial 5 cases, all these guys had Al-Qaeda attached to them. But what's the evidence for that? Can you share the evidence? And we saw in three of the cases that there was no evidence. It was lies. CSIS had not been honest with the court. The RCMP had lied. Any information that was being relied upon was by the fruits of torture. And we know that in the ongoing cases, there's no threat posed by any of these guys. The onus has to be on the Canadian government to go beyond saying, oh, well, this guy is horrible and, and these people are horrible. Where's your evidence? They said that about Omar Khadr. He's back home. He's a Canadian citizen. He bought a shopping mall out in Alberta. He's doing fine. And the sky has not fallen in. So what is it that is preventing the return of these children, women, and men against whom we appear to have no evidence of any wrongdoing, A, and B, if there is any evidence of wrongdoing, Jack's parents have been very clear. You put it in front of a court and give them a fair and transparent open trial. But to date, there's been zero evidence beyond the allegation that he's a bad guy that's been out there in the public. So what we've been doing is going through all the documentation that Sally has meticulously put together and archived and cataloged over the years and looking at how we can share those pieces of information. For example, we are talking about the communications that were received by global affairs officials directly from Jack in which Jack shared his conditions with Global Affairs Canada. He talked about being tortured with Global Affairs Canada, and they've been sitting on this information for five years. They have not done anything about it. And not only, I think, are members of the public outraged about this, I think that the Auditor General would be very pissed off to hear about this because they actually produced a report on the failure of global affairs to properly meet the needs of Canadians detained abroad. This was a number of years ago, and they linked it back to recommendations that came out of the Arar inquiry by Justice O'Connor, in which they talked about how global affairs needs to up its game. We've started a petition which just crossed 3,400 signatures. 
the comments on that petition are really quite remarkable because I think people are getting that if you believe in human rights and you believe that those rights are universal, that they apply to everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of what you think they have done or what they may actually have done, they've still got rights. They have a right not to be tortured, not to be arbitrarily detained, not to be libeled and slandered through the media, and certainly not to be brought before court unless there is real evidence against them. So far, we have had pretty much nothing but a positive response. We need to continue to speak out, which is what Sally is doing right now. And hopefully they will begin to see the pressure. They're going to see the numbers going up on the petition. We're going to be having days of action. We've got a five-hour vigil in front of the prime ministers. We're doing a chain fast. And in all of the responses that we've received to these events, people are saying, well, of course, that's the right thing to do because they've been able to read the story. They've been able to see the documents. They've been able to see the quotes. They've been able to realize that when Sally and John were on trial, the police had access to every single communication between Jack and his parents over a number of years. And not once was there any hint that Jack was a member of or was swearing allegiance to ISIS. And you know that if there were, it would have been used in the trial against Sally and John. It wasn't there. So ultimately, if you're going to make these statements, you have to back them up with facts. You want to talk about this issue? Bring some facts to the table. Bring some questions to the table. We're happy to talk with you about them, but don't run away from it because you're scared of somebody in the Toronto Sun saying that you're coddling terrorists against whom there is no proof that they are involved in terror. What would you say to people who are listening, who are concerned about Jack's situation, and who want to act in support? I would like them to get involved in all the actions that we are planning at the moment. So signing the petition, talking to their friends and family, writing to their MP, raising awareness of it, calling on the government to do the right thing, because it's people ultimately who are supporters, even organisations that you would traditionally expect to help in a case like this have not stepped up. So it's ordinary people that we're looking to now. In this situation, we are seeing the fruits of decades of governmental abuses being committed against marginalized and stigmatized communities. And if you have a doubt about Jack or any of the detainees, look at the record of the organizations and the politicians who are making accusations and see that persistent period of dishonesty, deception, reliance on torture, racism, Islamophobia, and violence, and ask yourself, who do you really trust here? Do you trust a mother who is trying to bring her son home under these horrible conditions? And what would you do if you were that mother or that father or that sister or that brother? And I think we know what that answer is, of course, because you know your loved one. There's no mystery here. Jack was in touch for many years. She knew what was going on. She knew what he believed in. And it was very clear that he was not this monster that he had been made out to be. So don't be afraid. And when you do speak up, you're speaking up not only for Jack and these detainees, but you're also speaking up for a democratic process, which has been so seriously eroded over the last few decades in the name of national security, that it's really quite shocking how few rights are left that are being respected for those who are marginalized. You have been listening to my interview with Sally Lane and Matthew Behrens about the case of Jack Letts. To learn more about it, Search for Free Jack Letts on Change.org. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.